Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. And my next guest on West Coast Live, books include Freedom Land, Clockers, his new one, Lush Life. He's uh, written for The Wire, uh, the, uh, the show on HBO, and he's here on his uh, tour talking about his new book called Lush Life, which is set in New York City, and it's the story of a street crime and all the interlinking people and events uh, that take place as the life of the city swirls around in this book. Please welcome Richard Price to West Coast Live. Thank you very much. Settled? Stable? I'm not stable ever. (laughs) Is that why you turned to writing? Yes, I could be alone and nobody could witness it. (laughs) (laughs) But you you work on uh, such interesting uh, collaborative efforts. I meant maybe it's not collaborative, such as working on The Wire. Well, it's sort of like this very hip assembly line. Everybody goes off and does their own episode and... uh, you know, if you're just writing, it's just, you, have, you can have cobwebs going from your forehead to your laptop and nobody knows, cares. You know? <laughs> yeah. the, uh, I like the image of cobwebs. Did you just make, up that, just make that up? Yeah, it's one of those things we writer people do. <laughs> but also, part of your work is, is, is research, and, and some of your early work has been set in New Jersey because you didn't have access to the NYPD, the New York Police Department. But now it seems you do, or you must have access to the New York Police Department. Well, I mean, I hung out with a lot of different people, the police only being, you know, some of them, but they always seem to attract people's attention. Um, but by the time I got permission to hang out with a meter maid in New York, I wrote three novels in Jersey City. Jersey City's very casual. If they, um, if they like you, the cops will go out and kill someone just so you could see how they process a homicide. <laughs> You know, they're, they're just very common. All you got to do, you have to buy the drinks. That's all. <laughs> which, which they call heart medicine. So they sound like they're a, a group of real cards. Um, yeah, they're a bunch of bent playing cards, okay. <laughs> in, this, uh, in this book, I'd like to hear a little bit of, of Lush Life. There's a scene and talk to you about the the way that you write dialogue and so forth. Maybe you could set this up where uh, there's just been a, a shooting on the, on the street. Okay, and given we're on radio, I'm so happy because I have to put on these like nasty Dwayne Reed glasses. <laughs> um, Actually, they're quite flattering on radio for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't, oh, oh, can you hold yeah. it or that'd be great. And, Listen, I don't know what you're doing after the show, but I have another reading in about three hours. <laughs> I'm going to come hold the microphone for you then. It, it, it's so cool. I said. Um, there, was, there was a murder. The Lower East Side is uh, such a mix and match of cultures there that you have guys, people that live in the projects, and then you have this influx of like MFAs, you know, like all these kids from, you know, middle class kids from well loved homes, and it's become their playground. And every once in a while, there's a it's when worlds collide and a shot goes off. And this, what happens here is this one kid is killed and somebody else that's with him and is very traumatized, uh, he had a very uh, panicky reaction. He sort of ran away, never called 911. And when the cops got a hold of him, they thought he was a witness, then they realized he might be the doer himself. 
So this is part of like this interview that they're doing with this guy. He thinks he's helping them, but what they're really trying to do is lock him up. And there is a reference to this 911 call that they know he hasn't made. This must be like a nightmare for you, Maddie said. I'm so tired. Eric looked at them with ragged eyes. When can I go home? I promise, as soon as we get to the bottom of this, Yolanda said in her mournful voice, you are out of here. Bottom of what? Let's talk a little more about the actual shooting. Eric cupped his temples, stared bug-eyed at the table. The guy who throws, throws the shot. What? Shoots, Yolanda said. Yes. How is he holding a gun? How? Eric closed his eyes and after a moment's hesitation, extended his arm, his gun hand turned sideways, his elbow slightly higher than his shoulder so that the bullet would have a downward trajectory. That gangster style from the movies, Matty asked? I guess, yeah. The coroner would verify the accuracy of that. Okay, then what? They take off. They take off. And you did what? Me? I tried to call 911. From where exactly? Well, first I tried right on the sidewalk, but I couldn't get any reception, which I told you before, so I ran into the building to try in there. No luck? No. But you definitely tried. Punched in 911? Yes. Searching their faces. Of course. How long would you say you were in the building for? I don't know, as long as it took to try a few times? A few times. Yes. So, guess. A minute? A minute, Maddie echoed, thinking of all the possibilities for stashing a small gun in a broke-down walk-up with 60 seconds at your disposal. And where in the building were you exactly? Again, with each new question, Eric's responses became both more tentative and more alert. In the lobby, you know, the ground floor hallway. Anywhere else? Eric faltered then. Maybe up the stairs. Up the stairs? Why would you go up the stairs? To see if I could possibly get better reception higher up? The exhaustion suddenly leaving his eyes altogether. Do you know anybody in the building? Yolanda asked. No. Er Eric again looking from face to face. I'm just asking, she said, because most buildings, the street doors are locked. So unless you know someone to buzz you in or, well, this one was open. Okay. There's probably a boat building. A boat building? You know, 200 Chinese guys sharing an apartment. You have to keep the front door open or make a million keys. A boat building, Maddie turned to Yolanda. I never heard that one before. The door opened, Fenton Ma, cap in hand, popping his head in. Excuse me, I'm looking for the witnesses they brought in on the shooting last night. <laughs> Who, him? Yolanda chucked a thumb at Eric. Ma recognized him, Maddie could tell, his expression of naked surprise making Eric Cash feel both humiliated and lost. No, Ma said, the, the Chinese people from the canvas. I'm supposed to interpret. They said to check with you. Well, we don't have them. Yolanda shrugged. They're somewhere around, Maddie said. Ask the desk. All right. Ma giving Eric one last look. Thanks. Canvas came up with a couple of people in some of the buildings near 27 Eldridge, claimed they saw the whole thing from their windows, Yolanda said. Eric didn't respond. Most likely, Maddie thought, either too busy rejigging his story or still lost in the Chinese cop's eyes. My guess, however, Maddie said, is the most we'll get out of them are aerial head counts. You know, how many people were there when the shot went off. That would be five, right, Eric? Yolanda said. Yes, he said carefully. That would be five. Good, Maddie said, then settled into himself without losing eye contact, as if it were Eric's obligation to keep the conversation going. I, I didn't think, Eric finally said, just to say something. Can you guys just barge in on each other in rooms like this? Why not? Yolanda shrugged. It's not like we're in the middle of an interrogation or anything. <laughs> Richard Price, reading from Lush Life early on in, in the novel.
there's uh, there's dialogue in there where you just uh, you know just leap ahead. There are uh, there are nuances, and then there's this the slang. For instance, boat building. Did you make that up? Yeah, yeah, I made up all the slang. I mean, you know, it's like the minute, you don't. I'm, you know, I'm not like Margaret Mead. I go out there with a pith helmet. You know, <laughs> you know, you know, just big wide khaki shorts and a clipboard. You know, you know, um, say fellows. Uh, you know, what, what's what's nizzle, schnizzle, bizzle? I'm I'm sorry, b boy, g boy. You know, you know. By the time you, if you do that, by the time it hits the bookstores, it all sounds like Run DMC. So you know, my Adidas. You know, it's so. Uh, yeah, just you know, you just listen to people. And you get the spirit of what they're saying, and you go home and you make it up. It's I'm, you know, I don't get in trouble for it. It's called fiction. You know? Well, that's that's good. I I, I did watch uh, an episode of The Wire last night. First time I'd seen the show. It was the one where you had done the story and written the teleplay. It was set in a uh, largely in a Baltimore schoolroom. But there was also, as you as you talked about this, there was an academic who wanted to study the corner boys or the people in the in the in the streets and and understand them. And he hires uh, uh, a black man, a former policeman who is a, uh, had worked in a hotel security business, and he uh, he then um, wants to meet eighteen to twenty year twenty one year olds, and he does. I mean, to but it terrifies him. <laughs> well, he wants to meet eighteen to twenty one year olds because he feels like this is the group. If he can reach out to them, he can sort of turn them around. You know, and the cop's looking at him like he's from Pluto. I mean, you know, and he convinces him, no, you got to start with the 10 and 11-year-olds. You know, 18 is like Korean War veteran already. Yeah, yeah. And, and for that, uh, I mean, in, in a way, that was kind of a parallel of somebody wanting to go research to see what the slang is in the street, how, what the behavior is, where can you get into affect it. And it made the Baltimore school system look terrifying. Um, it is, you know, um, I mean, Baltimore is terrifying, period. I mean, look out an Amtrak window. It looks like Berlin, 1945, before they started dropping food. Um, but, you know, this thing, I, I don't do research like that character. You know, I'm not an academic and I'm not a journalist. They just basically hang out and, you know, trust in osmosis, you know. Uh, I don't have an agenda. Like, I'll go to a place that I want to write about and I'll see who'll have me. You know, and if I make a connection with one person, they say, oh, well, given that, you got to talk to so-and-so. You know, they pass me around like a bong, you know. <laughs> I, I think it was in, in Freedom Land where you, where you were talking about uh, how every conversation between a black person and a white person ended up ultimately being about race. Yeah, well, I, I, just, I, I just think that people are still so self-conscious of the other that, you know, it's like white people, especially, they get a hernia just trying to look in their eyes like they don't notice that they're talking to a person of another race. But, you know, you can go one Mississippi, two Mississippi. By the time you get to 10 Mississippi, they'll be talking about Jackie Robinson or Barack Obama or, you know. Um, it's, just, it's, it's just built into the, the, the way we're socialized and self-conscious. Do you have any, uh, you know, having... having uh imagined this world? I mean, is there a world that you can imagine where people eventually, well, I don't know, that's, that's Pollyanna-ish. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've got a particularly uh, uh, grim view of the human condition at the moment. Well, not, you know, not really. I mean, it's, you know, I'm writing about grim stuff, but, you know, I'm putting the energy into writing about it, and I'm trying to capture the life. You know, it's like the title, Lush Life. I never listened to the lyrics of the song. 
you know, uh, which I should have since it's about a, a bunch of old ladies getting hammered in a Third Avenue bar at noon, and there's nothing to do with my book. <laughs> but, I mean, the title of the book, I mean, the title refers to, you know, the abundance of life on the Lower East Side, like, you know, there's like six different universes, you know, like, sort of like cross, crossing each other's paths. I just like lush life, and the fact that the book was about uh, a murder, it seemed ironic, but I really felt like a jerk when I finally... Uh, read the lyrics. <laughs> well, but it's a great title anyway. I mean, you know. I hope so, yeah. So when, when you, I mean, there's something that, that happens in, in life where there are coincidences that occur, synchronicities, that people would say, or novelists would say, that could never be allowed in a novel. You know, that would, that would just be seen as, as, as too fabricated. Yet those sorts of coincidences do happen in, in life. And well, I'll tell you one thing. I mean, the fact that something really happened is the defense of the mediocre novelist. You know, and they say, well, that's, that's ridiculous. I know, hey, this really happened. You know, so what? It's not working in your damn book, you know. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and I've had a few of those. It really, it really happened, last-ditch defenses, you know, but you, somehow they don't help. Um, I, and, yeah, and... I've completely lost track. Yeah, well, it's all right. It's all right. Uh, Elmore, Elmore Leonard had said that uh, you know, in order to keep a writer's uh, a reader's interest, you you leave out the parts that they skip. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> which which yeah. seems to me what you do. I mean. Yeah. Well, I have three hundred pages that nobody would skip and would never get published if you want to see them after the show. <laughs> but um, but but you must have had the good sense to take them out, or did somebody else take them out? Um, they, somebody took them out, like the Israelis took out the passengers in Entebbe. I mean, it, I mean, this, the book wasn't, sub, it wasn't a submission, it was an intervention. My, my editor had to come over to the house and talk really calm and soothingly <laughs> and sort of hovered over the laptop and said, no, it's okay, it's going to be okay. See that button? I said, you got to push that button that says send. You know, just go ahead, it's okay, just push send. You know, and it took me about a half hour and then he wrapped me in a blanket, you know. Um... <laughs> And it really happened. Yeah. Well, you know, so that, you know, sometimes God's a first-rate novelist, and suck, sometimes he's a second-rate novelist. Yeah. I mean, I can say, I mean, the thing about the Lower East Side is it, that, that hooked me in is that, you know, everybody knows the Lower East Side historically. Uh, you know, it's like people get, got off the boat in 1900, took one look around and said, I have to succeed, you know, and there's like 50 years of people desperately trying to get out of there. And now it's become sort of this, uh, this playland, um, in part, but there's also like five other cultures that aren't supposed to be living there, but somebody forgot to tell them. Um, and the typical moment on the Lower East Side for me, which sort of, uh, can the, the danger of hanging out too much is that everything is like, wow, God said that? Okay, it's God, not gonna, you know, he's not gonna can't sue me for plagiarism, you know. And but it was a, like a typical moment on the Lower East Side. I wasn't even there looking for anything, and there was a traffic accident. This Orthodox Jewish guy carrying two watermelons was was you know trying to cross Delancey, and he got hit by a van driven by an Italian and an Indian uh, that were both a little you know uh, three martini lunches. And um, by the time I got to the scene, the streets were roped off. All the uniformed cops were Chinese. Okay, 
and they were doing the roping off. All the plainclothes cops, you know, wearing that sort of cut-off weightlifter sweatshirt and those, you know, badges on beads, they were all Irish and Italian. Um, the, the people on the sidelines were all Dominican and Puerto Rican, and the guy's wife, his, his Orthodox Jewish wife, was standing there holding his wide-brimmed hat in which folded was his, his long frock coat and his broken glasses. Um, some junkie was pulled up a beach chair and was sitting there <laughs> nodding out and started smelling something burning. And he had a cigarette and was burning his thigh hairs. He had shorts on. Um, there was about a dozen young white kids on, on, on bikes uh, that had tattoos coming up the base of their spine, you know. And in all of this, some old Irish lady with a can of Budweiser, it's about 11 in the morning, comes out. She's looking at everybody and she goes, I hate those people. And I had no idea who she was, who she was referring to. You, you get a flavor of the novel in, in, in that little that story. Was that, outtake. that was an outtake. Oh. Sorry, God. <laughs> the book is called Lush Life, the writer Richard Price. Uh, also author of Clockers and Freedom Land, and uh, where's your reading at three today? Do you know? Um, well, we're in Vancouver now, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. West Coast. It's, this this uh, is my 16th city. Uh, it's San something. San Andreas Fault, or something. I don't know. San Santa Inez. Santa Inez, the Santa Inez. Anyone know who's, who's with, who's? San Mateo. San Mateo. Oh. Oh, I'm right. supposed to actually say. Yeah, wherever well, no, that might be. Wherever that might be. You'll find it. Hey, thank you very much. Richard oh, Price, thanks so much for being here on West Coast Live. <laughs> this is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.